Welcome to Food Connections, the podcast where we talk about all things food and cooking and chat with our favorite Phoenix chefs. I am Pascal Diano, the co-host with Chef Lou Swartz and Danielle Sanders. So last Saturday morning, Chef Michelle Richard passed away and I thought maybe we could have a little tribute to him or talk about him because I know you two both worked out in Washington, D.C., and maybe have had the chance to work with him or for him or meet him. Yes, I actually have uh, done a couple of dinner with me with him. I have actually a picture in my office. When I was chef at the Georgetown Club, I did a charity dinner, and Michel came to help me with the dinner. He did one of the course. The chef from the Hyatt was there, and uh, the chef from Marcel. Robert Wiedemeyer. Michel was definitely a pioneer in his things. I remember actually meeting Jean-Louis Paladin about 30-some years ago when he first came in Washington, D.C. And him and Michel Richard became very good friends. Michel came in the U.S. sent by Gaston Le Nôtre, the famous French pastry chef, to open a store in New York City in the late 70s. And he did so. Then he moved to, I believe, Santa Fe, New Mexico, opened a pastry shop, kind of wasted his time and he stand there for a while and ended up in Los Angeles and uh, he became the pastry shop his, his shop I think was on Melrose Street and uh, he became the pastry shop for the Hollywood crowd and one day Michel uh, Jean-Louis Paladin told him you should open a restaurant and Michel said well I'm a pastry chef I don't know much about it he said yeah, you know plenty I'll help you Michel opened in 1987 a citrus restaurant in Los Angeles and became got best restaurant in food and wine the very same year. After this, actually, he had the uh, genius to try to open Citronelle, and Citronelle was a franchise, or well, not a franchise, but uh, he owned all the Citronelle, but he opened them in various cities in small boutique hotel probably paying next to nothing for his rent and put those hotels back on the map, opening his restaurant, taking care of their banquet and room service, but also opening Citronelle. And it was kind of the idea of the the, uh, the French McDonald's or the fine dining thing. Every Citronelle had exactly the same menu and every menu had all the items presented exactly the same way which was kind of a great idea in a way, except that when you hire, he had I think seven or eight of them at some point across the country. And when you hire a chef to run your restaurant and you tell them, this is how I want to do things done, inevitably the chef will change a few things or put his own interpretation. So he got tired of it and got rid of everything, sold everything and just kept one in Washington DC. And this is when really I met him and became friends with him and did a few parties with him. He also used to come at l'Académie de Cuisine, the school where I worked, and taught a few classes, and I always tried to go and help him or assist him in his classes, and it was a lot of fun. The guy was definitely a pioneer of uh, cooking. He also thought of cooking, I think, completely different than the way I do, because he's a pastry chef, and he was not trained as an apprentice, so he was trained as a pastry chef, and then went into cooking, and uh, always applied his uh, his crazy ideas, and when I say crazy, I'm talking like borderline genius idea, into food. 
the um, I mean the guy was uh, the guy was just brilliant. I remember, for example, when they borrowing a uh, a smoked salmon, a side of smoked salmon I needed for my uh, at the club. So I sent somebody sent a, uh, a slice a side of smoked salmon at Citronelle, and they brought it back to me. The salmon was sliced lengthway. Instead of being sliced like a regular smoked <laughs> salmon, he had it sliced. Horizontally, so we had very few slices of the thing, but the slices were huge, so you could make canapé the size of an entire Pullman loaf. I mean, I thought it was just brilliant. The guy was just, uh, just very smart. Uh, he also, I remember, he transferred just about all his recipes, classic French recipe. He ended up making them in the microwave. I know he made pastry cream in the microwave. He tempered chocolate in the microwave. I mean, the guy was really, really uh, something else. Every dinner I had at Citronelle ended up was usually a trip to the kitchen where he would show me some crazy stuff that he was working on. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of his favorite shops was uh, Home Depot. And uh, he bought a lot of broom handle and copper pipe and all kinds of weird, crazy stuff at uh, the Home Depot to, uh, to, to, to make his food. And he made things absolutely very different than, uh, than most. So the guy was really, really brilliant. The Kit Kat bar, that's his, isn't it? Yes, and actually I have another quick little story about this. Um, he he came up with a dessert years ago that he called Kit Kat Bar. And it was basically a mixture of dark chocolate, milk chocolate, and Jean Duja. Jean Duja is a chocolate flavored with hazelnut, for some of you who are uh, not familiar with it. And he made some kind of a mousse. There was two parts of his dessert. One part in the bottom that had feuilletin, which is like a crushed uh, French cookie that gave a little, um, a little crunch, and a chocolate mousse on top of it. And he cut it into little bars and called it Kit Kat bars. And he really became famous for this. And the funny thing is, actually, when I moved to uh, came to Scottsdale about ten years ago, I was at a, a restaurant. I really don't remember the name. I think it was the Sam Fox restaurant. And we had dinner, the, 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 the waiters pushed the dessert saying, you know, we have a award-winning chocolate dessert, etc. So I said, okay, let's try it. And they bring us the dessert and immediately I just said, well, this is Mr. Michel Richard Kit Kat bar. So when the waiter comes back, came back and said, how is it? I said, ask your pastry chef if he, if he ever worked with uh, at Citronelle or at Citrus. And, and sure enough, I saw the pastry chef picking his head out of the kitchen, looking at me, <laughs> and I guess he was not too happy of being busted. <laughs> but again, to his, uh, to, his, uh, to his merit, his Kit Kat bar was really nice. So he did not pretend that he had invented it, but uh, uh, nice tribute to Michel. And it's also a dessert that I have done here a couple of times, and uh, pretty popular. Yeah, you did it for my rehearsal dinner. It's my favorite dessert. And actually, I ate at Central in D.C. with your brother, Francois, when Don and I were there. And then, Lou, you also worked in D.C., so I don't know if you ever had the chance to work with him. I actually had the the privilege of working with him a a few times, once in D.C. at the D.C. Central Kitchen, actually, when we were uh, volunteers for uh, the culinary school. And worked there. Uh, this, is was, a, this is not like kitchen, it's a kitchen for uh, homeless. I mean, and uh, regularly, chef cooking school, famous people in Washington go spend a morning cooking at DC Central Kitchen. So it's a, it's a famous place. So I worked there with him, uh, and that was uh, the day that who was there? Uh, Jean Louis Paladin was also there. There was a lot of big name chefs working there. Then I went to work in uh, Philadelphia, and he actually came up to do uh, the what's called Book and the Cook, and it's basically a festival that they do in Philadelphia where the chef that writes a cookbook comes in and actually prepares a menu 
and he actually came in to work in the restaurant that I was working at at that time, that Larby Daruch, which was his uh, chef at uh, Citronelle in D.C. for uh, a few years, was the chef at uh, Restaurant Take, and I got to cook with with him there, and then also out here in, in uh, Phoenix at, uh, at uh, the Phoenician Resort, and uh, that was a, a nice fundraiser that they did for Casa. And he's very, very talented and uh, was just an amazing chef. Super friendly. You know, is what they nicknamed him, uh, Santa Claus. Yeah. Because, you know, he just looked like Santa Claus. He was friendly, always had a smile on his face, the big fuzzy white beard. and He was just a really, really great guy. And very fortunate to say that I had uh, the privilege to rub elbows with him a few times in the kitchen. So he is going to be missed. And I don't think they're going to find a person to fill his shoes anytime soon. I remember a uh, funny story about uh, uh, Michel Richard, which actually also invent, in, uh, involved uh, Robin Williams, and sadly, uh, they're both gone. It was sometime in the 90s, uh, Robin Williams came to Washington, D.C. to do one of those Kennedy Center honor uh, taping, where the president is there, and they honor a whole bunch of people. Um, I don't remember if he was being honored or if he was part of the cast that uh, uh, did the, um, uh, something to honor someone else. I forgot about it. Anyway, the, um, the, uh, one of my assistants at school was a young lady who worked at the Kennedy Center. And Robin's manager asked her if he knew of any restaurant open at 10 o'clock at night after the show at the Kennedy Center. Robin Williams wanted with three other people gonna, wanted to go out for dinner. So he said, we heard of Citronelle. Can we, uh, do you think uh, somebody can call and make a reservation? So she called them and Citronelle said the kitchen closed at 10 o'clock. So she called me and said, could you please call Michel at Citronelle and tell him that Robin Williams wants to come for dinner, and, but he's not finishing until 10 o'clock, so he's probably going to be there like at 10.15, 10, uh, 10.20 or so. So I called Michel and told him the story, and I completely forgot to tell him that uh, this came through a third party. He, Michel, actually thought that uh, Robin Williams was a friend of mine. <laughs> So he told me, he said, yes, I'll keep the kitchen open until 10, uh, 10.20. And he said, but if at 10.20 there's nobody, I send everybody home and we close. And I said, perfect, thank you. And so Robin Williams and his, uh, and his party showed up at Citronelle and they had dinner. And since it was the only table, Michel, the chef, was there sitting with them and talking and constantly telling him, well, you're really lucky that Pascal called me because I normally close at 10 o'clock. And he said that a couple of times. And finally, Robin Williams looked at him and said, who the hell is Pascal? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it became very confusing. They had a conversation. The conversation I could imagine between the two of them, like, what the hell are you talking about? And the other one said, what, you don't even know the name of your friends? Uh, it was a funny story. Anyway, that's a, 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 another uh, a memory with, uh, with Michel. Michel also, I think, was uh, extremely talented, not just in the kitchen, but he actually was an artist. He took, uh, when he took a pencil and started drawing something, I mean, the guy was just, just astonishing. And uh, I know that I was lucky to get a couple of his Christmas cards for a few, a few, ni- a few winters, a few Christmas, I should say. And he always designed his own Christmas card, and it was always wacky, crazy, and beautiful. <laughs> 
yes, the guy was really, really very, very talented. And uh, and actually, every time he signed his name, uh, he would uh, he would make a, a big round face with a beard and a chef hat <laughs> on top of it. And amazingly enough, it looked just like him. <laughs> and he did this in like five seconds. Yeah, the guy was uh, extremely, extremely talented. And this is what I would say, uh, what the French would call a bon vivant. The guy really enjoyed life. Maybe a little too much, and uh, this is why, probably a reason why he's, uh, he left us at 68 years old. I remember teaching some classes with him, and at 10 o'clock in the morning, he would look at me and uh, uh, tell me something in French, like uh, in the, on the line, like, what are you drinking here? So immediately, we opened a bottle of white wine and started sipping a few glasses while he was teaching his class. I mean, the guy was just a happy, uh, friendly guy. I mean, absolutely wonderful. And another one of those chefs that would come with something crazy and immediately would call everybody and show, show everybody what he did and, uh, and teach everybody how to do it. I mean, the guy had no secret. He had no, uh, you know, I mean, he was just, just extremely talented. And as, um, as a good chef uh, should be, and uh, yes, we will uh, we'll miss him. I mean, the guy was very, very good. Didn't you say you also had a funny story about him? A few funny stories. I don't know if there's some I can tell. Don't remember, yeah. remember <laughs> what, uh, what we're talking about here. I don't remember. I don't think you told me what it was. I think you just said you had funny Oh, story. yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He, uh, I saw him one day. It's uh, it's going to be like PG-rated. Not, uh, not R-rated, <laughs> but this is a PG-rated of our <laughs> podcast. Um, I was teaching, I was doing a class with him. He was teaching the class and I was helping him. And he was putting a, uh, he was wrapping a salmon in puff pastry with some other stuff around it. And uh, I had uh, asked him and I said, uh, before he stopped the whole thing, he said, you'll see how I do this. He said, it's pretty fun. My puff pastry never gets soggy. So... Sure enough, uh, what he did actually was he wrapped the salmon in saran wrap and wrapped the uh, salmon in saran wrap in puff pastry and baked it, uh, baked the salmon in puff pastry wrapped in saran wrap inside the dough in the oven. And when the whole thing was done, so you understand by baking the, uh, the salmon wrapped in, uh, in uh, plastic, no juices leaked into the dough. So his dough was perfectly dry and flaky. And when he was done, he just cut both ends of the fish, of that, that log he had made, oh. grabbed, the, um, grabbed the paper, the plastic at one end, and pulled it slowly. And his comment at the time to the whole class was, well, here you go. You see, it's, it's easy. It's like a tampon. Just remove it slowly. <laughs> and he was pulling the whole thing out. Yeah, funny guy. A little nutty, but, uh, but funny. So you two both worked in D.C., and then you were Pascal's student yes. at Academy. So what, what did you do out in D.C., or what was your experience out there? My experience after doing the six months, five days a week class was to do my externship and Chef Pascal actually became the chef at the Georgetown Club, and that's where I started the pastry uh, chef at the at the Georgetown Club, and I was there for I would say a year and a half or so uh, before I left to go to Philadelphia. So I, I stayed there, I worked there, and you know learned uh, the pastry, and basically took that whole thing over, and got the opportunity to kind of wet my feet over you know on the uh, the hot side as well and and that's where i really started the 
switch from being pastry into into doing more savory and you know fell in love with that it's kind of uh, you know you jump into the fire it's uh it's the pressure and you know i love that part of it so uh, i was in dc for about two years before i i moved back to uh where i grew up in philadelphia so i was there for a short time but i did enjoy the the town of uh of dc and and the surrounding areas it's it's beautiful and uh, a lot of uh, culture and a lot of different varieties of restaurants that you can choose from and you know just an amazing city to to be a part of so and i was uh, very lucky to to be there especially at that time so who was chef at the joe sun club when you were there uh chef andrew nisi oh i remember yeah, yeah andrew so was good he was awesome good guy. and he's out in uh, kansas yep. city right in a country now. club right he left there. I forget where he went to, but he's uh, he was there for uh, several years, and then uh, yeah, he, years. I think he just started uh, working at a, a new restaurant. I'm not sure uh, what the name of it is, but uh, he, he started recently there. So yeah, Andrew was very talented. He was awesome. He was uh, definitely, uh, to put it lightly, to, he was he was a ball buster. <laughs> I couldn't tell you how many times he pulled me into his offices and, and shut the door behind him. Like, oh God, here we go. And his his big thing was, you know, in his office, you know, he's just open up the window and just chain smoke and just hang out the window so everybody could hear who was being yelled at at that time. And it was usually my name being yelled, you know, down the down Wisconsin Avenue. And the people are hearing this Lou guy's probably a fool, you know, and, and putting up with all this. But I did it for a year and a half, two years, and, you know, made me a better person for it. Uh, I mean, that is definitely old school uh, chefing right there. That's not what we do anymore. You know, a lot more PC now. You can't get away with half the stuff that that uh, that he did. Yeah, I was the, I was at the club for about five years after him, and I just spent about barely a year there before moving to Phoenix. The the wait staff, the banquet waiters, actually still talk to me about him and uh, and the stuff that he did. So he left uh, he left a big impression. Yes. <laughs> I forgot that you started out as pastry, but. I should remember that because your cheesecake is better yeah, than mine. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> at least what I advertise. Yeah, so yeah, I uh, I enjoyed doing it, but I just uh, I day in and day out, I just didn't find it as uh, as appealing to to do as far as uh, as food. But savory, love doing it because you know if you mess something up, you can always add a little pinch of this and that, and and you can fix it immediately. You screw up on a pastry and you're you're done. That's you know your day's ruined. So much rather be doing the savory but I still do I still dabble with the with the desserts so still enjoy it and how long did you live in DC or in Philly before you moved here uh, I worked there for a little over three years uh, I, I, I grew up there and so I mean I spent almost 30 years total uh, living in the Philadelphia area but I only worked there professionally uh, in you know cooking for a little over three years I, I don't include the one year of flipping pizzas at the the local pizza joint as uh, as part of my uh, my uh, learning career, but uh, that was fun. Definitely had a definitely had a blast and got you you know got my interest into uh, into cooking back then. But I don't include it in my in my resume. <laughs> it's not on your so. resume. No, it's not on my resume. No, no, because I got fired. <laughs> and then, how long did you live in D.C.? Oh boy, I uh, I lived in D.C. for just about uh, thirty years. So I moved to DC 1976, actually, for the the year of the bicentennial, and uh, and left in 2005. So yeah, 30 years. 
it was fun. It was fun. I taught most of the time. I, um, you know, I started as a uh, cook at Rive Gauche restaurant, which was the French restaurant at the time. And then I got my first gig as a chef. Uh, lasted about three months. Actually, I quit, the, I quit the, the next day. But they managed to keep me for three months until I could find somebody to replace me. And then I ended up uh, uh, quickly find some better jobs and, and better thing. And then I went into teaching relatively quickly. So yeah, it's been fun, and I do uh, like you, Lou. I, I do like Washington D.C. It's uh, a pleasant. It's a little rough in, uh, in the summer with the humidity, and now it seems like the winters are like uh, just as bad as Buffalo. But uh, it is actually a very pleasant city to live in. Uh, lots of culture, lots of good restaurants, lots of great chefs, and lots of interesting people. So I have a couple questions. We didn't have anyone ask questions on Facebook, and I think one of our one of the people that submitted last time didn't want to submit again because you gave her a hard time. So my friend Lauren says that there's a recipe she can never make, and she can't remember exactly what it is, but... What, it, what is it? <laughs> I don't know. Well, but she said it, it involves using um, wine, so there's some kind of wine sauce. So she says every time when she makes it, um, the cream curdles, and she wants to know how you combine them when it's hot without curdling the cream or having it separate. My suggestion is probably she probably doesn't reduce the wine. She probably dump wine and cream at the same time. And uh, every time you cook with wine or anything acidic, uh, tomatoes, uh, any kind of wine, including white wine, uh, reduce it. And when you say reduce, that means reduce by at least two-thirds of the original volume, anywhere between two-thirds to uh, reduce completely until completely dry. So I don't know. What I suggest maybe is uh, maybe she pours the wine and the cream at the same time and the acidity of the wine just curdles the cream. Again, uh, uh, cooking is really not about recipes. Cooking is uh, is about techniques, and uh, here's a good example of uh, probably a bad written, badly written recipe where it does not mention anything about reducing the wine. Yeah, and then Sharon's sister-in-law actually has a question. It must be Sharon's question. Yeah, it's probably secretly <laughs> Sharon's question, but she is going to disguise it. She says, "From my sister-in-law, how do I keep my peanut brittle from becoming grainy after it dries?" Well, if it becomes grainy after it dries, that means that it crystallizes, yeah, right? Yeah, the sugar in there is. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know how she makes it, but again, when you cook sugar to uh, to to when you try to get caramel from sugar, do not stir it, do not shake the pot, do not do anything. And I, as a matter of fact, in the beginning, wash the side of the pot so that the sugar cooks evenly. And uh, when sugar crystallizes, probably because something went wrong, or the sugar has a little bit of flour or dust in it or something, or because somebody are just stirring it. What I would do is, uh, would you say peanut brittle or almond brittle? Mm-hmm. Is make the caramel, make the caramel uh, to the caramel, dump your almond, and just pour it on your on your marble top. Now, if she wants to do some kind of praline, now when you do a peanut brittle, this is gonna be hard as a rock, and uh, you're gonna break your teeth on that thing. So I think a good praline, like they make them in New Orleans, I think they put a little baking soda or something like this in the caramel, so it makes it a little bubbly. And you have something with a little sugar instead of a hard hard caramel. It's got little bubbles, therefore it's soft. That's actually one of my most handy tricks is, Lou, you showed me to stop. If it starts to uh, crystallize the sugar, you can stop it with a blowtorch. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That that saved my caramel a few times. Right by putting the blowtorch, the flame right into the right. Ca- into yeah. the sugar. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, I never learned that in culinary school. I learned that from Lou. Well, and make that's... you make precautions so the sugar doesn't crystallize. Be even easier. 
Yes, that, that would be even easier. <laughs> and, and make sure that when you're when you're actually doing this, uh, make sure that all your sugar is actually caramelizing in the, in there. So a lot of the thing is where you're saying is it crystallizes. And it might also be that the the sugar is not all completely melted and then caramelized at the same time. So if you got a little bit of that granules left in there, it will start crystallizing. Yes. So make sure that all of your sugar is starting to caramelize and and cook evenly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. My friend Stephanie has a series of three questions. She asks, how should she season a brand new cast iron skillet? That's quite easy. I mean, uh, you're going to take a, you know, an, an oil, typically, you know, a vegetable oil, typically. And best way to do it is, and the easiest way to do it is just to kind of uh, shellac it down with a, a, a you know, we, we learned in, in culinary school, you fill it with the oil and then you know, heat it up heat 300 up. to 300 degrees and do it that way. I mean, you could simply just do it by cleaning it off really well and then just oiling the inside and outside and then just baking it in the oven, you know, with a, another sheet tray underneath so it kind of catches all the, the oil dripping off of the, the pan, so it kind of inverted in the in the oven so the oil kind of drips out of the pan. And, you know, 300 degrees for about an hour or so, and, and basically it's going to form a nice, what's the word I'm looking for? Barrier. There you go. Yeah, well, usually, on there, so. usually when we uh, when you season a cast iron pan, I mean, putting in the oven or doing on top of the stove, yeah, you fill it up with oil and you heat it up on the stove uh, regularly until just about smoking point, uh, not too far because then the oil becomes gummy and may eventually stick to the pan. And uh, what happens is usually as you heat it up to, well, you say close to uh, 350, the, uh, the metal expands as you heat it up and the oil that's in the pan actually penetrates the metal and then you let it cool with the oil still in it and the metal retract. retract. It's almost like having a, a, a thin coat of uh, non-stick stuff like uh, impregnated on the surface of your pan. But also cast iron, every time you wash it, you need to either spray a little bit of uh, something in it or just rub a little bit of peanut oil or any kind of solid oil. Uh, vegetable oil in it so it doesn't rust. Although hey, in Phoenix, you're pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good with that. So her other two questions. She said, what is the best way to de-shell an avocado? And same with a kiwi. Well, try to buy an avocado that doesn't have a shell. <laughs> Get an avocado that has a skin. <laughs> and uh, and same with a kiwi. <laughs> I hate those kiwi, those kiwi shells. Yeah, don't use the plastic ones that are on your grandma's table. Those are not the, those are not edible, so don't use those. So, now the best way to do it I, is to take a large spoon. Uh, once you, you know, cut the the avocado in half, you know, take a large spoon and and just kind of scoop out the the pulp inside of there, and and do it that way. I mean, you know, you can also slice it inside of its shell, so to speak, uh, with a knife. Just make sure you don't go all the way through the shell and into the palm of your hand and, and you know, ruin your day. But uh, the easiest way to do it is just to scoop it out with, uh, with a large spoon and then slice it and make sure you get some type of acidity on top of it because it's going to uh, brown out really quickly. So uh, do it to order and, you know, large spoon, easiest way. Kiwi, I just find it just, it's so simple just to take a, a paring knife and just kind of, you know, clean it that way. On one end of the kiwi, when you cut the end, I think it's the end from the stem that's yeah. attached to the tree, mm-hmm. has a little uh, pointy things that you need to remove. And then I think if you first cut both ends of the kiwi and then stand it up on one of the end with a, a very sharp paring knife or a boning knife, actually, you can just gently, what the French call pelé à vif, a skin, remove all the skin in, uh, in one little, uh, I mean, remove a little strip of skin all around the, the, the kiwi. Okay. 
I'll just ask this other question, too, that my friend Catherine asked, and I'm not quite sure I understand how this happened, but she said, how do you make sure that chicken soup isn't sweet? That's what happened to me last time. Label your salt and sugar. Yeah, well, that's what I said. I said, <laughs> did you swap your salt with sugar? And she said she thinks the carrots and celery made it too sweet. Celery, I don't know carrots, possible. Then uh, I guess use less carrots. Yeah. What kind of recipe was it again? You said? Chicken soup. Chicken soup. Yeah. Use kosher salt. It's much. Um, it's a little coarser, and you can feel it when you uh, when you grab it. That's why one reason also uh, cooks use kosher salt. I mean, it's a better salt anyway. It's pure. But when you grab it with your finger, you know it's not sugar. You don't have to taste it. Was she cooking with wine when she was doing this? Uh, <laughs> she might have been cooking with wine, been yes. Wine. Then yeah. stop drinking so much. Exactly. <laughs> Catherine, when are you going to do this next time, invite me over because uh, it sounds like it's a party before the, before the <laughs> soup starts. So. so what's the difference between kosher salt and regular iodized salt? Well, kosher, by definition, because it's kosher, they cannot, uh, the, the, what is it called, cashwood law, uh, cannot add any additive or preservative or anything. So if you, uh, if you take a box of kosher, kosher salt and you look at the ingredients, you're going to see one word, salt. That's it. Opposed to many other uh, uh, salt that has uh, chemicals to uh, prevent it, you know, keep it flowing uh, free and other chemical to uh, prevent it from caking, etc. And it's absolutely unnecessary. Okay. We will end with a few quickfire questions. What is your favorite date night restaurant in Phoenix? I don't want to date right now. If you know my past <laughs> history, I don't want to date anybody. So. Um, oh, God. Date night. God. You know what? There's a place that just opened up. It's a friend of mine, and it literally just opened up uh, this past weekend, and it's called Undertow, and I'm going to go and check that out. It actually looks like a pretty cool place, so I'm, I'm giving him a plug, so that'll be my place to be a, a date night. Undertow. Undertow, yeah. It's, I, the, it's the new tiki bar uh, on 36th Street in Indian School. I saw that article you posted, and it, look, it looks like a fun place to go for What's drinks. What's Undertow? Athlete food? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I guess it's like surfer food and stuff like that. I, I guess it's, uh, oh, T O W. Yes, yes, okay. yes, 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 uh, yes. Risotto or polenta? Oh, wait, you didn't answer my question. What's, what's your favorite date night? Spot? I don't know. I don't know. We try always to go to, uh, to some, some new place if we can find one. Um, I don't know. I mean, the last, uh, Last restaurant we went to was uh, last night, Hop Dirty. So How not was much that? of a. It was a, the burger were great. The only were problem they? is their system is completely screwy. You order your burger, then they give you a table, and then they send the burger to another table. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so so we had to wait, and uh, but it was nice. The guy accompanied the uh, the sparkling water, so that was big. Ooh. Yeah, it's always nice. So risotto or polenta? Risotto. I make a good polenta. Um, but I, I lean toward risotto. What is the most annoying food term? Like foodie or oh, table? I would say either delish or yummo. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, that, that that's a pain in the ass right there. So. Yeah, I agree. All those yum and all those words are kind of uh, don't belong around the table. Huh? We all know who started that. I know. We talked about her last week. No, the, the, the Cheshire Cat, uh, Rachel Ray. Oh, 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 yeah. 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 Oh, that's right. She got a mouth that has a hook in it. Anyway. Um, And then a lot of those terms, kind of. Vegan or gluten-free? Neither. Are we we talking to to cook for? I don't know. It'd be better to be vegan or better to be gluten-free? However you want to interpret the question. This thing is 
Oh, shoot. Vegan or gluten-free? Uh, if anybody's trying out for that date night uh, with, with Chef Lowe, uh, try not to be either one. <laughs> I don't want to sit there and have to explain to the waiter, you know, she can't eat this, can't eat that, blah, 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 blah. Just eat the food, okay? Maybe gluten-free. Gluten-free and, uh, you know, I'm not here to judge people. Or I'm certainly not a physician and say you're not gluten-free. You're just uh, allergic to all kinds of allergy. Uh, allerg- it's annoying. <laughs> yes. Be in the hip crowd at this moment. But but it's actually easier to cook for gluten-free people than vegan. Vegan are really a difficult uh, difficult group to, uh, to cook for. I mean, once you, uh, once you can't use any butter or cheese or milk or forget it. Yeah. Don't stare at it too And long. again, but uh, again, I wish that vegan would actually be vegan. You know, I mean, you don't come here and uh, and give a hard time in a restaurant saying I'm vegan, and then when you're done, just go back and sit on your uh, in your Lexus on uh, on four dead cows, uh, you know, or carry their little uh, Prada shoes <laughs> with uh, with some exotic animal that uh, that make the skin of it or whatever. So I don't know. I mean, vegan. I have, a, I have a hard time getting vegan. I understand vegetarian. Vegan is uh, is different. So this last one I stole from you. What's your favorite tool in the kitchen? Tool? Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably a knife. I would say a sharp knife. Definitely, I'm not one of those guys who works those long uh, skinny tongs. Uh, mm. You know, I mean... Uh, if you uh, if you go to uh, French Laundry or those restaurants, you're gonna see the cooks uh, uh, putting a plate together. It takes them about five minutes uh, uh, to assemble food? a salad. Every leaf uh, is placed uh, individually with a uh, with tweezers and that kind of stuff. Uh, a little much to me. Wait, way too much. I would go. That wasn't me. We can't have that. <laughs> we can't have I that. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> I was doing an arm fart. Right on. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I think you already did. You did. Favorite tool. Good. Favorite tool. I you know just you gotta have a chef knife. It's gotta be you know that's the bread and butter right there. I mean that's what you need. I mean you could use that from uh, you know cooking savory food to chopping a big block of chocolate apart so that's got to be your one and only go-to do you think you need to use one of the fancy $200 Japanese knives or is just your standard Mercer 10 inch I would go if we're talking about working in a restaurant uh, you work with a bunch of crooks and criminals uh, so no I wouldn't bring a $200 chef knife to a place that you're going to Put it down and walk away from a, you know some guy that's you know addicted to something that's not uh, Flintstones, you know what I mean? So no, I wouldn't bring anything of value there. I mean, I bring a fifteen dollar chef knife and you know the hell that if they're gonna steal it, that's good good for them. But the can easily replace it. But no, I'm not gonna spend that kind of money to have it stolen by some schmuck that's gonna sell for you know a hit of uh, crack or something like that. So no. I remember actually you mentioned Jean-Louis Paladin earlier. I remember uh, doing a few dinner, a few classes with him and. Uh, I remember once uh, assisting him in a class that he was teaching, and he turned to me and told me in French, he passed me a knife, so I said, uh, what knife do you need? And his answer was, any knife. And I just gave him a chef knife, maybe like nine inch long or so, and uh, that's the only knife he used all night. So why this whole class? I mean, he, he peeled garlic with it, he smashed stuff, he cut meat with it, he did, he did absolutely anything with any kind of knife. And uh, I actually asked him at one point, I said, would you rather use a paring knife for that? He said, well, this, this is just fine. 
and to show you that actually it's interesting that uh, if anybody is in selling knives here, you got to sell knives to uh, a culinary student because once they're in the kitchen, they don't buy knives anymore. <laughs> and then you realize that uh, a, a sharp knife will just work for just about anything once you know what you're doing. How often should you sharpen your knives? Whenever it's dull, <laughs> it would be a good, uh, a good time to start. But again, if you use your steel every, uh, after every onion or every two carrots or whatever, you uh, just two, three times uh, running the knife on the steel, you should be able to keep it sharp for months and months. Okay. <laughs> Easy enough. Okay, so thank you for joining me for another fun afternoon, and we will talk next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so I'm with Chef Gio and Parker, who is the sous chef at Nico, and we are just sitting down to talk a little bit about your new restaurant and Virtue and and whatever else Pascal wants to talk to you about. Well, sure. First of all, let me just say that Virtue, um, which is downtown uh, uh, Scottsdale, is uh, one of my favorite Italian restaurants, if not the, my favorite uh, Italian restaurant in town. And uh, Chef also just opened a new restaurant in Gilbert called Nico. And uh, this is where we are right now uh, to talk with us. So good to be with you guys. And um, also, we, uh, Danielle and I, have a little uh, a special thing here because the sous chef, uh, or are you the chef or the sous chef here? You're the sous chef, uh, is Parker. And Parker happened to have attended our school, when was it, three, four years ago, three years yeah. ago or so? So, uh, very good to, uh, to have seen that Parker has done very well. And uh, Parker was at Virtue, you're going to be here for good now? Or? I'll be back and forth, mostly, once season starts. Very good. Well, congratulations, Chef, on the opening of a new restaurant. I understand it's named after your son. Thank you very much, yes, yes, it's named after uh, my, my, my son, uh, Nicholas, uh, Nico for short. Um, basically, um, what I wanted to do with this restaurant was to compile a, 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 a list of recipes, so to speak, and, and pass it down to my son, you know, generation to generation recipes that I've, lo I've learned along the way from my aunts and my uncles and my cousins and grandparents and my family, and, and put them all together and, and showcase them through the restaurant with my own interpretation, of course, and then, you know, have something to pass on to my kids as they get older, and, you know, of course, I had to name it after my son. <laughs> Super. Yeah. Uh, very nice, and uh, considering that, uh, how old is your son? Two. Two, so yes. he doesn't even know he has a business no, uh, no, uh, waiting no, for no. him. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, that's very good. I also always have a, a couple of questions that I love to ask chef, and actually it's uh, about two things. First of all, what's your favorite tool in the kitchen, and what's your favorite ingredients? Or the ingredients that say you, well, I, I, I hate the whole story of like, you know, if you were on a desert island, what's the thing you wouldn't right. take with you? Right. Uh, but uh, your favorite tool and your favorite ingredient? Well, I think my favorite tool in the kitchen are my hands. Right. You know, your hands are, 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 are your best tool. You know, you, you, you put all your love through your hands into the into molding of a dish or, or the, the mixing of a salad, uh, something so simple. Um, it just, that's your best tool. You know, you have total control over your hands, so that's, that's, that's my favorite tool, I guess. Um, as far as ingredients are concerned, that varies day to day for me. You know, today might be garlic. Might be, you know, tomorrow might be shallots. Or, you know, the next day might be the tomato. So, to answer that as a single ingredient, I don't think I can answer that that way, because it just changes day to day for me, at gotcha. least. Yeah. 
Parker, you want to answer that? My favorite tool? Um, my knife that I use every day, really. I mean, he took the, the whole hands thing because, of course, I love <laughs> That's probably what I would have said, too, but I'm not going to say the same thing he said. And my favorite ingredient? Whatever he tells me to cook with. <laughs> good answer. That's good. I mean, some, some, some chef likes cracked pepper or salt right. or whatever. And I mean, obviously, uh, 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 I think every, every cook will, uh, will need to cook with salt, huh? Sure, of course. What do you got? Okay. So do you want to tell us a little bit about maybe the difference between virtue and here? Sure. Um, talk about that. Sure. Sure. I think um, um, the, the main difference between Virtu and, and Nico is that Virtu is, um, is an ever-changing menu. I mean, we change the menu at Virtu very often, whether it's once a week or twice a week or sometimes more, depending on what we can get our, our hands on as far as the freshest possible ingredients. And, and try to elevate um, fine dining in our, our beloved city of Scottsdale. Um, I think, you know, uh, what Virtu is, is, is a restaurant that doesn't try to follow the trends, but tries to set the trends. Um, so we try to break ground on using different ingredients that people haven't seen before with certain, uh, certain items. Uh, it, it might take us a long time to get these ingredients, uh, for example, the, the carbonero shrimp, the really bright red shrimp that come from Spain. I've had them in Italy, I've had them in Spain, I've had them in New York before, but it took me two years to find someone to bring them here to Arizona. And no one ever saw those before unless they were in Spain or, or, or some or place in Europe. So, you know, trying to, like I said, set that standard to, to elevate the dining scene here in, in, uh, in the Phoenix market. Um, and then Nico... I think is more of a, um, not so much standardized, but it's more of a relaxed atmosphere, more of a comfort food atmosphere, more a more um, home style cooking, I guess you can say, more simplistic in a sense. Not that Virtu's not sim uh, simple, because that's, that's one of the, uh, I think, things that we achieved and we achieved well was keeping the ingredients simple and letting them speak for themselves, but just preparing them in, in, a, in an elevated way. But um, and, you know, same goes for Nico. We, we, we take pride in our ingredients and making sure it's the, the best possible ingredients. And we try to do what we would take preparations that I've learned along the way and utilizing the ingredients that we have in the area locally. So, you know, whereas maybe eggplant was in abundance in southern Italy where I'm from, you know, here maybe it's squash, but we'll do the same preparation that I do with the eggplant from Italy, but I would do it with squash here. You know, so, they, so we try to try to keep them separate in the sense of, of um, not having the same menu items except for maybe one staple and that would be the octopus but other than that it's it's a pretty different restaurant you know? okay. and what was your path before you opened Virtue? I, I was in Italy for a little while uh, working in some restaurants there um, I also um, spent some time in New York City and worked in some restaurants there in New Jersey as well um, and then when I finally came out and settled into uh, Arizona, um, I worked in a few restaurants. I actually had my own restaurant for a short time, but we didn't uh, quite understand the business here yet, so it didn't work out too well. But um, I jumped around a little bit to really understand the Phoenix market, basically like you would in New York when you're jumping around from restaurant to restaurant to really learn, you know, in, in the beginning stages of your career. So I did that a little bit here in Arizona, too, by jumping around a little bit just to really understand the actual Phoenix market. Um, and then 
I landed at um, the airport actually, and I helped do the airport transformation from the fast food and, and the fast casual dining to local restaurants. So I was basically the um, the brand liaison and the executive chef of, of HMS Host in taking care of all the restaurant transformations at the airport, which was an amazing uh, job because it was a very big job for one. We had to build a 47,000 square foot commissary kitchen and really understand how to transport food to and from the airport, which was very challenging in itself and how it's all hold its temperatures and things like that, but I think um, the, the, the biggest lesson learned is, you know, a chef can be a great cook, but if they don't understand people, and if they don't understand business, they're going to fail. Because not understanding, you know, become, becoming a chef is also about becoming a people person, to understand your staff, to how to lead your staff, how to gain the respect from your staff, how to, how to um, um, get them, get your, your staff. To so another question I have is, um, the, it seems like Gilbert is a little, is kind of just blossoming as far as the food scene. Mm -hmm. Do you find the, are there different challenges here as opposed to in Scottsdale? Um, yes and no. Um, I think um, one of the things that uh, began as a challenge was that people expected Vertu here. And I tried to explain to the media, I tried to explain to people that this is not Vertu number two. This is a completely different restaurant. So I think some of the expectations were a little um, uh, too high, so to speak. I don't, I don't want to say it too high, but... Uh, I think the expectations were that they, they, they wanted Vertu, you know, and this isn't Vertu. This is a different concept. This is a different idea. So it was a little bit of a challenge with educating the guests and what we're really trying to achieve here. But um, I think it's, it's starting to come around a little bit better, and, and I think um, it's becoming well-received now, and, and, and things are on the up, and things are looking really, really good. And, and, um, but, um, I, you know, as far as um, difference in guests, no, it's no different here than Scottsdale, than Seattle, than New York or Chicago. You know, you're always going to have the guest that wants to cook their own food, you know, and change your complete menu of what you've done. You know, and there's going to be guests here that just appreciate what, you know, your creations. So it's no different here than any other city in the, in the country or, for the, or in the world for that matter. So I want to end with just a few quick fire questions. Sure. So most annoying food term? Like foodie. Foodie. <laughs> Um, well, kind of on that same page. Vegan or gluten-free? Oh, gluten-free. I would say gluten-free, too. <laughs> okay, best place in Phoenix for a first date? For two honest craft. You better say for two honest craft. I have to say for two. I would say for two anyways. Okay, um... So I think that's... Oh. Actually, to answer the first question you asked the chef, I'm reading right above the bar here, there's a sign that says, I don't like gourmet cooking or this cooking or that cooking. I like good cooking. And uh, that's, uh, that's pretty good, actually. It's one of the only, only quote. James Beard apparently said that. Oh, I was going to ask you, too. I actually ate it virtually... Okay, I actually ate it virtue last night, and I noticed on your menu... <laughs> that you were awarded by Esquire, one of the best new restaurants a couple years ago. Did that, um, when that came out, did that change, I mean, did that change for you guys? Did that 
It did. Um, you know, when we, when we were when we got top twenty restaurants in the country um, in two thousand thirteen, it was a um, it was an unbelievable honor uh, to to be you know in the same breath as some of those restaurants that were on that list. Um, but um, it opened up a lot of doors. It opened up a lot of doors in, in um, you know in our market and, and nationally. I mean, we were recognized nationally. So I mean, people coming to vacation or for business in Scottsdale, you know, they needed to come to Virtu and they needed to come check out our restaurant, come see why we were in the top 20 in the whole entire country. So it was an amazing, um, amazing uh, um, um, help, I guess you can say, in the success of the restaurant. You know, it was, it was, yeah, it, uh, you know, because we, right after we got that, that was in October, um, in February of that year, we were nominated for um, Best New Restaurants for James Beard as well in the semifinalist category there. And that's not an easy thing to do because, I mean, you're going up against the, you know, the, the, the top restaurants in, in the country that were just... So that was another kick for us to, to advance and, and stay on the level of, of success that we were having. And it's just continued to go up since then, and it's been absolutely amazing and ama amazing ride you know and I could I couldn't be more uh, more happy about it yeah. okay and one last question so what can we expect to see you see from you in the future another restaurant or well I do have a daughter too <laughs> um, but I don't know if I would name a restaurant after her but um you know, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. Right now, um, you know, I want to continue, you know, um, proving Vertu's success and proving that Vertu is among the top 20 restaurants in the country. Um, I do, I would love, 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 love so much to get a James Beard Award for, you know, Best Chef Southwest. I would, I would do anything for that. Um, and, uh, you know, Nico is open three months now. So there's a long way for us to go until we're comfortable here and saying, okay, we're, we have all the pieces in its place. You know, there's a lot more work to be done here. And then who knows, maybe along the way we will do another restaurant or two or three or four or five. Who knows, you know. Um, you know, I just go day by day and see where, where the day takes us. Okay, well, thank you guys for talking to us. Thank you so much. Classic Cooking Production, hosted by Chef Pascal Dionneau, Chef Lou Swartz, and Danielle Sanders. Produced by Danielle Sanders.